What's up, friend? Hey, if you dig what is happening here, uh, here's an invitation for you. Consider supporting me on Patreon by searching for Jonathan underscore Foster. Just go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, and you can find me there. For as little as $3 a month, you can help me continue to write and to podcast and also just be in community with other folks. Would it be okay for me to say, well, I don't know who I'm asking permission for. Um, so yeah, it's okay for me to say that landing on these ideas as I have and as I continue to do so, honestly, it's cost me a lot. So uh, your support is super helpful. It means a lot to me. Thanks, everybody. Welcome to the Jonathan underscore Foster podcast a series of audio recording files where Jonathan engages with questions and concepts through the lens of Rene Sherard's mimetic theory and open and relational theology. There are a lot of great podcasts out there, but when you think about it, really, this is probably the best one. today's show, even though he was supposed to get all his thoughts out about the church in the last two episodes, he's still on the same subject. <laughs> That's right. I got more thoughts. Imagine that. Uh, but also, there were a lot of questions about this thing we call church, so I feel justified in giving it yet another episode. So to recap, we're, uh, we're talking a bit about how we got here as a church Uh, what has taken place. And obviously I don't have time to go through all the historical changes and all the cultural changes that have taken place. But a couple of weeks ago or a couple of episodes ago now, we talked about how violence has inspired religion. And it's not so much that religion has inspired violence or inspires violence, which I think it does at times, but really it's a deeper problem and that violence has inspired our religion and how our religious scapegoating systems have been sacralized We keep turning to it over and over. Driven by our desires and our insecurity, we unify with certain folks. It casts out other folks. And we pick our victims, our scapegoating victims, because it gives us the best chance to build unity with the people we like. It gives us the best chance to stay away from the people we don't like. And then when we kick them out, we gain a sense of peace. Now, of course, this peace never lasts. So the next time conflict arises, which inevitably it does, we do it all over again. But of course, every time we do this, we shrink its efficacy just a little bit more until we're all closer and closer together, pointing our fingers and shouting and yelling. As Chesterton said, all the world winds up being like one wild divorce court. This is a challenging thing to overcome not least because of the problem we're going to talk briefly about today. Yeah, bolstered by some writing by people like Richard Beck and Mary Douglas, we're going to talk about this interesting phrase for a little bit today called negative dominance. Negative dominance. Thank you, Cliff. Hey, have you any idea what negative dominance is? Uh, Maybe like just being attracted to the negative more than the positive. Well, it's pretty close. Yeah, it's this idea that being in close proximity with something deemed unhealthy winds up initiating disgust and how usually the negative is deemed more powerful than the positive. Sounds super interesting. (laughs) You don't sound particularly convinced. 
I think maybe you've got a sarcastic dominance thing going on with your personality. And yet, I just say what you tell me to say. True, true, true. Once again, the more I get into conversation with you voiceover people, it messes with my head. Anyhow, back to negative dominance. For example, think of being at the public pool and with that one kid who can't hold it long enough to make it to the bathroom. Yeah, if everyone finds out that he has relieved himself in the pool, of course everyone's going to freak out. Because the small amount of urine is thought to contaminate the entire pool. Or have you ever been with someone who discovers a piece of hair in their food? We are motivated, psychologists tell us, in part by this thing called negativity dominance or negative dominance. So the urine isn't assumed to be cleansed by the pool. The urine is seen to be something that infects the pool. And of course, the question is, why wouldn't it be the other way around? Why wouldn't the pool water transform the urine? Why wouldn't the food transform the single piece of hair? Why wouldn't the clean kitchen overwhelm the power of the mouse droppings or the cockroach or whatever the case might be? Well, probably because at some point in our history, someone got sick or became contaminated with something. So when we become aware of the negative contaminant, I guess the adrenaline kicks in, the neurochemicals really fire up. It's been wired into our brains to stay away from certain things. It kind of makes sense. When something unclean contacts something clean, the unclean almost always wins out because generally we are negative dominant people. Well, this is okay as far as it goes. I mean, it can make you a little crazy, but we all get it. The real problem, especially for our context, is when we allow this idea to morph into our morality-making systems. For example, um, imagine going to your friend's house, and there have been studies done about this by famously by a guy by the name of Paul Rosen. So imagine going to your friend's house, and you're cold, and he gets a sweater out for you. But right before you put it on, he tells you that this sweater used to be something that Hitler owned. <laughs> what the studies have demonstrated is more often than not, people will, re will refuse to put the sweater on. And in many cases, people will refuse to even be in the same room with the sweater. According to negative dominance, it's not only being in contact with something that makes you unclean, it's being in the same vicinity and now we might have a path to understanding the leap that we make with morality with all of this. Because once we deem something unclean, we feel like we're justified emotionally and maybe even physiologically to stay away from something. And so when the church interacts with the world, it seems to make the church unclean. It's assumed that when a believer walks into an unbelieving situation, that the believer is contaminated rather than the situation being positively influenced. And it can't help but make me think about the context I grew up in. First Thessalonians 5.2 was a favorite verse of the group that I grew up in, uh, which says, abstain from all appearance of evil. Yeah, I think it's safe to say we were operating by a negative dominance mindset. Behaviors judged to be sin can activate something called a disgust response. Richard Beck talks a lot about this in his book, Unclean, which among other things, it means like the phrase, hate the sin, but love the sinner. Like that's almost impossible. It's incredibly complex to do. It's almost impossible to hate the actions of the person that you love. 
Because empathy, which one must have in order to love, and moral outrage, which one must have in order to hate, tend to be mutually exclusive. They work at cross-purposes. In reality, the tradition I came from de-emphasized empathy because to identify too much with the one sinning, well, it compromises the moral fury the tradition was in the practice of projecting onto the sinner. Because how can you be morally outraged if you're friends with someone? It seems that this is something that Jesus struggled with quite a bit because it was assumed in his context that by touching the leper or hanging out with women or being with the blind or the prostitute, it, it seems in his context that he was being contaminated. But Jesus, using a Richard Beck coined phrase here, wasn't negative dominant. He was positive dominant. Rather than him being defiled, he had the idea that he was positively influencing others. And this is what love does. Sometimes to engage with love, one has to intentionally rewire their responses, intentionally rethink what it is that they believe. This intention piece is super important. I I like Thomas J. Ord's definition of love. He says that love is to act intentionally, in relational response to God and to others to promote well-being. Uh, In my writing, I add scapegoating in here to try to keep the Girardian idea alive. And basically I say love is to act intentionally in non-scapegoating response, no, in non-scapegoating and relational response to God and to others to promote overall well-being. Love will ask you to intentionally consider your disgust response to consent to the idea that others who are different sexually and ethnically and religiously, they're still worthy of affection and they're worthy of being free, free from your judgment and free from religion's control. So I think one of the most important things, maybe the most important thing, is to consider who God is. And I believe God is love. If that's true, then the fundamental characteristic of love might be consent. Now, it seems weak. It's true. It feels weak. But it's its weakness that makes it strong. The weakness of consent is the strength of love. Again, it's challenging. But love doesn't control, so it's not going to force itself upon others. Hey, Cliff, what is uh, that French intellectual, Simone Weil, what does she say about love and consent? God does no violence to secondary causes in accomplishment of his ends. Yes, thank you. So God consents to our freedom, which opens the door to all kinds of problems, I admit, including violence. When God refuses to control, he consents to our rebellion, even its violence, and further away we are from the idea that love has for us. It doesn't mean that love has left us. It just means that we are more and more operating on our own, and eventually it'll lead to violence. And in the midst of all this, we can experience all kind of pain. Now, over the centuries, people have interpreted that as God's wrath, that God's mad at us because of it. But wrath in light of all this consent 
is really love's consent to our choice, to our freedom. The wrath isn't God's, it's ours. Brad Jerzak, by way of Simone Weil, by the way, has helped me interpret this over the years, has helped me interpret that this is what is happening even in places like Romans 1. When Paul says God gives them over to their desires, yeah, it's God consenting. So wrath is God's consent to our self-destructive choices. God is love. The fundamental characteristic of love is consent. The church plays around with a theme, but often, not not always, of course, but often it doesn't get it right. Because even while it's esteeming the individual, it will tell the individual that they have to conform in some way or another. But an individual doesn't have to conform. They only need to move forward in a relationship when they consent to move forward. The church cannot force itself upon the individual. And where they do, they resemble the Romans forcing themselves upon Jesus. They can't even do this in an effort to get the person to do the quote-unquote right thing. You win battles, but you lose wars by this approach. And even that's not right, because honestly, it's not really the battle. If we're trying to develop people that can think for themselves, then consent is the battle. So don't be mistaken. Consent is the thing the one in power must give to demonstrate love. It is not the thing the powerless must give. So this in no way is meant to further disempower those who have been victimized over the years. And it's important for someone like me, a white guy, to say something like this. Christ always includes liberation. The movement of love is always a liberating movement. Without such an emphasis, those who have been powerless, historically the opposite of the white guy, might assume that it's Christ-like to remain powerless. I may have used this example before on the podcast, but it's such a good one. I actually never get too far away from it. I think about it all the time when I get on this subject matter. I was speaking at a church a couple of years ago, you know, back when churches used to ask me to speak. And it was a week-long thing, so I did a deal every single night. Imagine that. Imagine having to come hear me talk every night. So towards the end of the week, I was, uh, it was before the service started, I was out at the book table, you know, trying to do my thing, sell a few books. And I remember this guy, he was about my age, maybe a little bit older. He was standing a few feet away from me. His arms were crossed. And he kind of leaned back and he said, hey, when are we going to start preaching about sin? Because our culture has just gone to hell. (laughs) And so I kind of rolled my eyes internally or maybe externally. And I took the bait and I said, what kind of sin do you want us to preach about? Well, he said, what about, and I can't even remember exactly what he said, but It doesn't really matter, does it? We've all had these kind of conversations, just fill in the blank. You know, it's whatever sin that they're particularly caught up in in the moment. And so he said, well, what about, and then he finished off with his particular sin, which caused me to respond to by saying, well, why do you care about their sin? And he said, I don't care about their sin so much, but I care about them and God sending them to hell. I said, really? 
even if there is a hell, I don't think God is sending anyone there as much as people are choosing it because they haven't heard a better story. And the better story is love, man. He said, well, we can't get to love without dealing with their sin. So we got to love the sinner and hate the sin. And so I quickly responded, how about we love the sinner and hate our own sin? And then I said, tell me about your sin. At that point, of course, he backed up a little bit and he said, well, you know, I've got problems. I've, I've got sin, but you know, it's not as bad or he started to stumble around. And I said, what? It's not as bad as others. What if this isn't about them? What if it's not about how bad the sin of the others is? What if it's about you wanting me to preach about their sin so it keeps the pressure off of your own sin? Well, that's kind of where the conversation derailed and he didn't buy any books, I can tell you that. He walked away and I just, I shook my head. I thought, oh my word, I've been here all week and I'm only making things worse. This whole thing where the church de-emphasizes love, actually, that's not even strong enough. They neuter love. They completely render it useless and impotent with their infatuation about sin. I mean, really, the whole thing's kind of a joke. The church is often its own worst enemy, is it not? Driven by negative dominance, blindly holding on to what words used to signify, defensively retreating back into religious rhetoric. It's a profound misplaced anxiety. Their culture war, political, binary motivated shaming tactics. It only increases the intensity of the backlash. Being angry at people for sin, well, and behaviors that the church has defined as sin, that the world has assigned off on, right? That's crazy. So being angry at people for their sin and then the way that they're turning away from the church, it's like being angry at someone who gets out of an abusive relationship. This isn't to say that the topic of sin isn't worthy of discussion, for sure. And this isn't to say that there aren't good things that have happened at church. But even in good situations, I'm pretty confident that we don't talk about power enough. So sure, tradition and ritual is good, but give young people the freedom to define it for themselves. Don't tell them how to live. Give them tools so they can figure out how to live on their own. Certain conversations around morality, and I guess I'm using morality in a lowercase m sense, it's definitely important. I mean, it's not like I could say that morality hasn't helped society move forward in some ways, maybe in many ways. Um, I know I used to be a part of a denomination that started in the early 1900s, and they worked with men in particular in impoverished situations where alcoholism was rampant. And it was ruining families. So it's understandable that in that context, that the church took a strong prohibition stance against drinking. Like those kinds of things make sense. Of course, contexts change and things change over the years. But it's true, instilling fear within people can often keep people from behaviors that are potentially destructive. But also fear can keep them from things that are potentially life-giving as well. The problem is you don't really know until you're in the behavior. And rather than taking a chance, the church has just taken a strong prohibition stance on all kinds of things, and not just with alcohol. It could be anything. I mean, certainly with sexuality, it's true. Basically, anything that we think is experimentation from the norm, and then they get to de 
define the norm in general is something that the church is going to tell you to stay away from. What I'm trying to say is I recognize that that's not necessarily all bad, but in the long run, I don't think it's good. I get it. I've had children. I know how destabilizing it is to consider morality to be a social construct. So I have some compassion on the church and all this. Yeah, and at times, the demise of much of Christianity, like the church being in decline and, and young people turning to all different kinds of other things, yeah, it's felt like we're a godless people. But if we could just take a breath and recenter ourselves and realize that there are other things at play here and that love has never left us, we could still make something positive out of all that has happened. The culture isn't godless. I don't care how many different social media posts you see this week that says such a thing. The culture isn't godless. God hasn't left the culture. The death of God, much in the way that Nietzsche declared the death of God, has brought about a moral crisis. But God is not dead because God is love. And how are you going to kill love? There's room to talk about morality, but in the end, morality doesn't save us. And even the moralists know this is true. You got to take it for what it is, but let's help young people lean into beauty. I think along with my friend, Al Whitehead, that beauty is the fundamental aim of the universe. And leaning into beauty, it's a journey that never stops. It seems to me that beauty is positive dominant. The church, moving forward, still has a chance to be a positive dominant agency in the world. I don't care what happens. Ecological disaster, war, famine, pandemic, apocalypse. There will always be a need for a positive dominant community of people. And even more, this might be the point. If we learn how to do it now, maybe it'll keep us from the apocalypse. Yeah, that's the thing I'm looking for. Not a way to read the text to justify all my apocalyptic making ways, but a way to read the text that gets me to hope, that helps me be positively dominant. That's the way forward. That's the way church could be. I'm praying and hoping that the next generation will help us get there. being a part of the podcast jump on to patreon to get access to dr j's writing in-depth interviews with some of his therapist friends and most importantly his unbelievably funny cartoon sketches all of that kind of stuff can be found at patreon.com forward slash jonathan underscore foster goodbye